Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. Today, I chat with Emin Gunsur, the CEO at Ava Labs and the founder of the Avalanche Network. We chat about his early experiences that led him to get interested in distributed systems research. We also map his journey from his work as a professor at Cornell to his work on Avalanche, one of the leading smart contract platforms with EVM compatibility. We dig into Avalanche's novel consensus mechanism, which uses the subsampling technique. We look at the architecture of the network. We talk about bridges and more. But before we start in, I wanted to remind you to check out the ZK Jobs Board, especially if you're looking for a new opportunity to work with the teams building ZK Tech and tools. We've added the link in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. I now want to pass the mic to my producer, Tanya, to tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon. Polygon is one of the top Ethereum scaling platforms for developers with over 130 million unique user wallets. They're committed to bringing Web3 to the masses by improving scalability and fostering the network effects of Ethereum. They're known for Polygon POS Chain, one of the most popular chains built on top of Ethereum, clocking even more daily active users than Ethereum itself at times. But the team is actually working on a spectrum of solutions, solutions like Polygon Edge, which offers developers the capability to build sovereign EVM-compatible chains, as well as a number of fully secured EVM-compatible zero-knowledge roll-up solutions like Polygon Hermes, Polygon Maiden, and Polygon Nightfall, which is built in association with Ernst & Young, as well as the most recently announced acquisition of the Mir Protocol, now known as Polygon Zero. These solutions inherit the security of Ethereum and use the power of zero knowledge. Over here at the podcast, we've been tracking Polygon's journey and have recently had Bob and Threadbare from Maiden and Jordi and David from Hermes on the podcast to talk about their respective projects. We strongly recommend you check out those episodes so you can learn more about their vision, project roadmap, and progress so far. So thanks again to the Polygon team. Now here is Anna's interview with Amin from Avalanche. So today, I'm sitting with Emin Gunsur, the CEO at Avalabs and the founder of the Avalanche Protocol. He also used to be a professor at Cornell. I want to welcome you to the show. Hi, Anna. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Cool. I'm excited to have you on. We actually met, I think, two, three years ago. And I sort of, I was like, hey, maybe you should come on the show. And then we just didn't. But mm -hmm. it's really great that we got a chance to reconnect and that we finally bring you on. Where was that? Was that in Berlin? Yeah, it was the Web Summit two, yeah. I think. Okay. Or sorry, the Web3 Summit. Yeah. Web3 Summit in Berlin. I think it was in uh, in the former East Berlin area in a fantastic house that used to be the radio for, for, uh, for East Eastern Germany. Germany. Funkhaus. Right. Yeah. Funkhaus. That's what it was called. Totally. Yeah, it was at the Funkhaus. Yes, <laughs> that's a great venue. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So yeah, I think we wanted to dig into Avalanche on this episode. I Since it's the first time that I have you on the show, I think it would also be great to get to know you a little bit. You have been known as an expert distributed systems researcher. That's sort of the space I understand that you're in. I'm curious about like, where did you get started? Why did you choose this field in the first place? 
Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, do you really want the actual personal answer or do you want the, the bogus answer? I'll give you the actual personal answer. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it started out when I was a kid. I grew up in Turkey and I grew up in a country where, you know, everything is done and everything is well done, I would say, but to a standard that's sort of 97% there. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Istanbul with these, in these drafty houses. The windows closed but they closed, you know, and then they let some air in. The doors closed, and then they are not really square in the frame. And I remember uh, going to this American high school that I got into. It, 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 you had to take an exam when you were 11 years old. And if uh, you were in the top 110, you get to go to this American school. And so, so there I was in this giant building. It's called Gold Hole. And it's got these ginormous, it's the very first high school, American high school built outside of the U.S. It's got these ginormous doors uh, built to American standards. And I remember opening this door and it closing with a satisfying click behind me and thinking, oh my God, this is exactly how everything should work. And, wow. and, um, and if, you, if you remember those days, you know, you would show up to, to a bank and things wouldn't work. They would be like, our systems are down. Can you come back the next day? Mm -hmm. You would go to the airport and... Uh, the, uh, the overhead displays wouldn't work. So um, so that's how I grew up. And um, that, I think, was the formative thing that forced me to think, hey, the world can be built out of components that are completely reliable. We can and should be able to engineer systems that anybody could rely on. And if, if we're not doing that, everything else is a luxury. Mm. You know, as, as every sort of geeky kid uh, in, in, you know, in his teens, you know, I was interested in AI. I was interested in, you know, building robots that did like creative things and so on. And I thought that's a luxury mankind can't have. We got to get the basics down. You know, I'm here. I live in a country where the doors don't close. And, uh, and here we all live on, in a world where the information systems are down the whole time. You know, they're not down the whole time. They're, they're down like quite so often that you can't really use them. And a better world is, is definitely possible. Mm. So, so that's sort of my my creation story. Um, it was so clear and preordained that I go into, into systems and uh, start out in operating systems. I was always a low-level system builder. I love building things that, that give you a strong guarantee for how they should work. I love building reliable things. Mm. I love building things that have a very strong reason for why they should work every time without exception. So um, that was my background. That's interesting. What era were you getting into this academically? Like what was happening around when you decided to kind of go into exactly the field you were going into? What was what was the state of the art at that point? So when I was a teenager, um, the uh, PC revolution was just beginning to take place. I was okay. a Commodore 64 kid. Okay, so, okay. Uh, so there's a, there's a crowd out there that knows exactly what I'm talking about, and I love you all. Um, you know, we, we are, we're kindred spirits. Um, it was a fantastic time of experimentation, people building their own machines or people taking these Commodores and, and doing things on them that is so close to the hardware that that's just really creative. The kind of sound you could get out of a Commodore 64, you know, it wouldn't be possible to get that kind of control over the sound chip for another 25 years, right? Wow. We lost that and then it came back, but it took it took decades. Anyhow, so that was the era uh, when I was a teenager and I was just being exposed to computers. I, I'm not a dinosaur dinosaur. I'm not a mainframe kind of person. I started out with personal computers. And uh, when I went to grad school, 
So I decided, you know, hey, after uh, I went to Princeton and I uh, got a scholarship there, and it was a lot easier to go to Princeton with a scholarship than to to try to take a placement exam in Turkey. So I left the country, <laughs> came to the U.S., and um, and then I thought, hey, I want to study more. And um, and if you if you go into a PhD program, they pay for you. And uh, if you go to a master's program, you have to pay. I was like, well, I kind of want to do, I want to learn more. So why don't I do a PhD and leave after a year or two? It was the initial thinking. Obviously, once you get into that, you get sucked in. Oh, you are stuck in the academic vortex, huh? Absolutely. It pulls you in and, and the process of solving things, the process of sort of figuring out things that mankind doesn't know how to solve. Mm. It's so, I mean, you know, those of you who did graduate studies, you know how exciting this is. So that sucked me in. And around that time, uh, I think it was the era when uh, I think in the world, the biggest thing that was happening then was the Internet. So uh, Mozilla, I think, got released the second month I was in graduate school mm. and the dot-com boom was happening then. Cool. Um, a lot of people around me were building dot-coms. Webcrawler, the world's first search engine, was built in the room right next to mine. Um, so there was a lot of excitement in the air. So, you know, that's how I started. I was building systems, low-level stuff. And I always loved things that had a life of their own and uh, distributed systems that sort of came together to have some emergent behavior, some emergent property. And that's what got me excited in about crypto in the first place, about peer-to-peer -peer systems in the first place. Yeah, and that's I'm kind of trying to place it. So like it, Napster was sort of there. And that's, yeah. I mean, that was my introduction to peer-to-peer -peer systems for sure. And I think a lot of folks in my generation, I'm not that much younger than you, I think maybe like five, six years, because I didn't have the comment of, I mean, I did use the very, very, very old Apple, the single okay. unit uh -huh, the Apple for team. like my first year, you know, when I was like five or something like that. Um, I just aged my, I just dated myself for everybody who's listening here. But, um, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering like, what, what did you make of Napster? Were you paying attention to that kind of thing already? Or was that in a field that wasn't really interesting. Yeah, I'm curious what that meant. Squarely on top of everything I cared about, okay. uh, Napster came in and showed that, that we could build services in an entirely different way. So mm -hmm. prior to Napster, everybody was building client-server services, right? So Facebook, yes. Google, these are client-server. I, I, I'm a client, you know, Zuckerberg runs the server, I go mm -hmm. to Zuckerberg for service, I am beholden to him. He is like a vassal, I'm like a serf. I'm, you know, I, I beg for service, he collects information on me, he sells it, he does whatever he wants. I have no visibility into his operation. That's client's client server computing for you. And Napster showed the world what you could do with a different architecture, with a peer-to-peer -peer mm -hmm. architecture. Shortly after Napster came LimeWire. And uh, and so, you know, along with Napster, I think there was a there was a problem that we all noticed. And do you remember the leeching problem? Mm, I don't think I knew that term. Okay, no, so the, the, the issue was when you wanted to download a file, mm -hmm. it was it was often difficult to find people who provided that file to you. The people wanted things, they didn't want to want to provide things, right? This mm -hmm. is a common problem anytime humans are involved. So back in 2002, this, this was a big problem. LimeWire had arrived and uh, this leeching problem was becoming an issue. Uh, one of the first projects I did as a young assistant professor was uh, to look in, into the leeching problem and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if I could solve the leeching problem? And, uh, and isn't it kind of obvious, you know, in retrospect, it'll be very obvious, isn't it kind of obvious that if you had some magic internet money 
that nobody controlled. And people had to pay for things, you know, blocks to download. They would ultimately run out of money, the magic internet money, and then they would have to provide blocks to get the money back, you know, so mm -hmm. they could continue participating in the system. So I built a system called Karma in 2002. It was mm -hmm. published in a peer-reviewed journal in 2003, so everything I'm saying is easily verifiable and checkable. Karma was a system that, uh, that used proof of work to mint coins. It is the first such system that was implemented that actually has that concept in it. Mm. So um, this predates Bitcoin by about six, seven years. Why wasn't that Bitcoin, though? What was different about the work that you had produced? Like, what did Bitcoin add? Bitcoin did add quite a bit. And, uh, and it got, it, there were multiple reasons for why it was a huge success. Bitcoin mm -hmm. was a huge success and karma... Karma was a huge success academically, but it's obviously, you know, doesn't compare even to, to Bitcoin in any shape or form. So technically, um, Satoshi came in and added one technical idea on top of Karma in that he combined the uh, minting process with the consensus process. Mm -hmm. I was relying on, a, on a, what we call a classical consensus protocol to maintain balances. And Satoshi said, you know, forget all that classical stuff that they teach you in school. It's fragile. It's not open. It doesn't scale well. And, uh, and so he came up with his own system, which also doesn't scale all that well, but it's at least open and it's robust. So, uh, so that, that was a brilliant insight. That's a, so we have to give huge kudos to Satoshi for that technical part. Mm -hmm. In addition, his timing was impeccable. So Satoshi came right after the 2008 crisis yes. and his vision was all encompassing. He was like, you know what, this, this thing, Bitcoin, is a system to take down and, and compete against fiat currencies with. It's a competitor to gold. It's a competitor, competitor to the dollar. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what he went in with. And he was anonymous. He could take on the regulatory risks and so on. Mm -hmm. In contrast... I was a known entity. Um, I wasn't anonymous. I came after 9-11 at a time when people were really worried about terrorist financing. So, um, you know, people wanted to get rid of all, all forms of payment online that could, be, uh, that could be used by terrorists in any shape or form. So, um, so my timing and my, my division was also not as expansive. It wasn't, let's take down everybody. It was, hey, let's add a new payment mechanism for only peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer file, file transfers. Where were you? I don't know if you remember this. It sounds like, I mean, with such a breakthrough that kind of references or has like echoes of the work you had done, where were you when you saw it? And did you realize it was what it was right away or did it take a while? Oh, absolutely. So I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So there are a couple of things that every... Um, every academic does when they first see um, a new piece of work. So first thing you do is you try to s fit it into your, your well-known pigeonholes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember distinctly thinking, oh, this doesn't fit into any of the pigeonholes. Amazing work. So it's novel for sure. It's, it's fantastic and novel. The second thing you do is um, how does it compare to other work I've done? And uh, does it cite my work? You know, that's a very common uh, academic <laughs> response. <laughs> and Satoshi was not aware of the work I did on karma. Um, okay. he's, he's not, a, you know, he doesn't come from a traditional academic background. He, he's a self-taught person, probably. And so, uh, so he's not aware of it. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. It's not a big deal. And then the next thing is, okay, and he makes a bunch of claims. So are they true? And, uh, and one of the striking things about, about Satoshi is, um, he's got some amazing insights and uh, he's got a, a huge technical breakthrough, 
But some of the claims he made were not true. But at the very first reading, I did not realize that. I, at the first reading, I thought, oh, this is brilliant. And if the claims are true, it's amazing. Uh, but he doesn't have proofs for his claims. He just sort of makes a gut, sort of a gut call saying, oh, you know, this is, this is what it does. This is how it works. And, um, and there were properties of his system that he himself did not characterize well and did not understand as well. So me and uh, Itai Eyal ended up looking more carefully and we decided thinking, or we decided that, hey, this deserves much more scrutiny. Let's see if any of these claims about the security of Bitcoin are true and let's try to prove them. You know, either prove them, you know, for real or you disprove them and you have a, an interesting result. And it turned out that that work led to this other work that we did called Selfish Mining, which showed that you know, certain things that Satoshi said and, and certain things that people thought about Bitcoin were just false. And, um, and there were certain attacks against Bitcoin that people could launch. Mm. Were you doing this work while Bitcoin was being developed? Like, was this something that was being shared in those communities as it was coming together? Or was it something more like after it had already been implemented, you, you were able to track that? So Bitcoin was always in, in the process of development, so to speak. Yeah, so, I guess it's, um, you could kind of say it still is, but right, slow it's, it's still now. Is being, being, <laughs> it's slowed down quite a bit now, and uh, and it stopped stopped you, you know seeing big changes uh, happen. Um, at the time, there was a community around Bitcoin trying to make it big. There was active development going around Bitcoin, uh, but the work we did was not shared within those that community. We were working as an independent academic group, and. Um, uh, you know, we, we just did our work independently and separately from everyone. Okay, got it. I know that there's actually a few other stories that we could touch on. I know I, I read the, uh, I re I've read two out of the three Ethereum books. I think the third one's mm -hmm. still coming. And you're in one about like the DAO. And I know there's a whole story of like Ethereum. And Phil Diane worked with you? Or is like, was there a connection between the two of you? Yeah, he was a student at Cornell, yes. and um, we, he didn't. He never worked for me, though. Okay. So he was not my student. Okay, okay, but I feel like whatever. In the story, I heard you were talking to each other or something. <laughs> well, we were, we were. So uh, the, the, it was the, the around the DAO hack. Prior to the DAO hack, I looked into the the code of the DAO, and um, it was a June day, if I'm not mistaken. And I had this cold. I had, you know, these summer colds that you get, and you know, your eyes are tearing and your head is exploding and I looked at the code and around line 666, I saw this bad pattern that's not supposed to be there. Mm. And I thought, you know, this looks so wrong. Um, and uh, But, you know, as a, as a researcher, you, you know, you get used to making hypotheses and coming up with ideas. So I usually use a smart person to bounce them off of, you know, I have a gazillion ideas for potential leads, but, you know, a lot of them don't pan out. Mm. So I wrote a message to Phil Diane saying, hey, I think there's a problem here on line 666. And, uh, but I was, you know, I was just kind of reeling under that summer cold. And Phil got back to me and said, yeah, you know, there's some issue there, but it can't be exploited. And, um, and he was wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> it's okay. Wild. Yeah. That, that was the exploit. That's how the DAO got exploited. That's how I, I mean, that's what I saw in the, in the book. Yeah. I forget which one, mm. one of the two that I've read, but yeah, I want to, I want to know like at what stage was Avalanche at this point? Like, so we're talking, you know, we're talking 2008, you see the Bitcoin paper, mm. 2015, is that the DAO hack? 16? 15. 15, yeah. I think. And like, at, at what point did Ava gel for you? Like, when did you start working on it? 
It goes back a long, long time. Okay. I mean, it goes back a long time. I mean, in the, it's, uh, I've been thinking about lightweight consensus protocols for a very long time, like decades. Mm. And um, it is the holy grail, right? To have something that scales, something that's fast, something that's cheap. You know, it's it was... It's, it, it, we know what we want. We always knew what we wanted. And um, we knew classical protocols were absolutely horrible. And so there are all these jokes in, in distributed systems circles about, uh, you know, oh, you think this is inefficient. Wait until you see Byzantine fault tolerant protocols or wait till you've seen a consensus protocol. Like, mm. Those are really inefficient. Oh, wow. So, um, huh. so classical protocols were well known to be crap. Um, and, you know, they're making a comeback. Everybody and his brother is trying to take an old protocol and bring it back in the form of a proof-of-stake chain right now. Interesting. But uh, but we knew that they, they were bad. And, and Satoshi's invention, Nakamoto consensus, or proof-of-work systems, uh, you know, they, they're fine, but they consume a lot of energy. They're terrible for the environment. Mm -hmm. And they're very expensive to run. There's constant leakage going on from your store of value. So we always knew we wanted something better but it was, you know, you know, it's just sometimes you just run into a brick wall. I know that I didn't have any ideas on that front. I know that all my colleagues had no ideas. People were just making incremental, small um, additions to classical protocols. And, um, and it kind of looked hopeless. But um, around 2015, um, again, right before the DAO hack, I started thinking about Ethereum 2. Um, we mm -hmm. spent a day and a half with Vitalik, Vlad, uh, and others on how we could improve Ethereum. And, and I learned about the difficulty bomb. I remember, you know, being told that the, sh the change, the shift to, uh, uh, to proof of stake was imminent for Ethereum. And, um, yeah. and they were trying to come up with the protocol, the new protocol. Uh, and they, they listed all the desiderata, everything they wanted. Mm. And I was like, well, look, guys, you know, the things you want um, are not possible with the technology that we've got. So, so we got to think more carefully about this. Um, anyway, long story short, I started thinking about it. And um, uh, sometime around 2017, I had this insight that one could perhaps use a different mechanism for consensus that no one had ever thought of using before. So uh, classical protocols all involve all-to-all -all communication. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're in a parliament, you're trying to pass a law, um, every single senator ends up checking the bill to see if there are enough signatures on it. Mm -hmm. This is how classical protocols work. So uh, the process of creating a block is essentially a process of collecting signatures on it. So this is what Ethereum 2 is trying to do. This is what Tezos does. This is what all the proof-of-stake protocols are trying to do. And so that doesn't work well. It works well at the size of a Senate, but you know if you've got 200 people, and all of them have to hear from 200 other people. That's 40,000 messages. Yeah. That's a lot of data. And if you have 1,000 people, there's a million messages. If you have 10,000, it's 100 million. It just goes out up with N squared. So it's a terrible way to build your system. So it doesn't scale. So I was like, okay, that's classical. That's, that can't work. I don't want to do Nakamoto consensus and proof of work. That I don't want to destroy the environment or be part of that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I thought, hey, there's another process maybe. And, um, and I remember talking to Kevin Sekniki, who was a graduate student at the time, and saying, hey, how about this process of repeated subsampled voting, which is a fancy term that simply says, you know, I I'm, I'm not going to be in a Senate. I'm going to be in a very, very big stadium. And I want to I want to check signatures from 
almost everybody, but I don't even know everybody in the stadium. And I certainly don't even agree with you on who's in the stadium. It's just so big and complex and it's in flux and it changes dynamic. But maybe, just maybe, if I were to check signatures from my friends and they were to check signatures from their friends and we repeated this process a bunch of times, would we be able to get assurance that's essentially as good as checking all the signatures from everyone? Hmm. Sounds and similar to like gossip protocols a little bit. It's a, is it it's in that category? Okay. It's exactly. So, but gossip is solving a much simpler problem. Gossip protocols are very well known. They're a Cornell invention. They're invented by people about 20 years my senior. And um, and they're, the gossip protocols are great for disseminating information. So I've got something I want the world to know. I send it out. But they don't, they don't guarantee consensus. Consensus is a far more complicated problem. Mm -hmm. Consensus is all of the correct nodes have to come to agree on the same decision, even though some people are, are, are doing all sorts of malfeasance and trying to trick you and so on. So, uh, so it's very similar to gossip protocols and how it works, but it's solving a far more difficult problem. Mm. And um, I mentioned it to Kevin, and um, we ended up writing a simulator and I remember him rushing to my office saying, hey, you know, this is amazing. Like this thing, it just, you know, it's, it's, it's logarithmic or maybe even faster. And it's just, it's just amazingly fast in how it converges. Uh, and we weren't expecting that. And so, so that got us started down the avalanche path. And, cool. uh, and the rest is history. Let's talk about the consensus part of this, actually. So you're mentioning you've, you know, you've sort of placed the proof of work, proof of stake. We actually did an episode in 2020 with Atai Abraham, and we talked all about consensus protocols, and it was Byzantine fault tolerance and the P before the, what is it, PBFT, SPBFT. Mm -hmm. We kind of went through a lot of these. I'm going to link to this in the show notes for some background. Um, we talked mm -hmm. about hot stuff. Can you help me understand where Avalanche fits? I know we talked a little bit of a, we talked about a spectrum between like very mm -hmm. concrete, like for sure correct and sort of a little bit more um, optimistically correct. I think there was a spectrum there. Yeah. Yes, so yes. we're like, maybe help. And by the way, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing this. People should actually listen to him explain this correctly. <laughs> but yeah, where where does Ava fall and what... Or Avalanche. And actually, is it, wait, is Avalanche? Avalanche is not the name of the the consensus protocol, is it? It is. Oh, it, it is. is. Consensus protocol is Avalanche. Okay. It works kind of like a, like a snowflake rolling down a hill, uh, turning into a snowball, turning into a giant avalanche. So, oh, um, that's where it came from. Is, it is. Okay. It's, it's supposed to be evocative. Cool. Um, so, uh, so just to summarize the space, the the distributed systems area is not a um, is not a very old area. It's been around for forty five years. So, in those forty five years, there have only been three different approaches to the consensus problem. One is classical consensus protocols. Mm -hmm. And people may have heard of um, PBFT. They may have heard of Tendermint and Tezos and Ethereum 2, etc. These are all in the classical domain. They all involve all-to-all -all voting. Okay. And um, a second approach that came uh, you know, in 2009 from Satoshi Nakamoto is proof-of-work, also known as Nakamoto consensus. So any coin that you see that has mining in it is uh, using proof of work. Mm -hmm. And then uh, those were the only two methods by which people 
knew how to achieve consensus in a, in a setting like the internet. And then the third and final chapter in the saga is the Avalanche Protocol. Hmm. Uh, it happened uh, in 2018, and um, it uses a mechanism that's entirely different and I would say groundbreaking and unexpectedly so. Uh, so it uses a different mechanism, and as a result, it's super fast and super cheap. Where do you put something like Tendermint in this story, though? Because, like, is that, that was, I, I also don't know the dates offhand, but I feel like that's around 2015, where that was kind yeah. of developed. What Would you call that classic, or is that was that an evolution as well, though? No, no, no. Um, it, it does have uh, it does have some improvement. So history is uh, is a funny thing, right? It's, it's not you're not always going from A to B and then to C. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening is we had classical protocols. Then uh, and and the and one of the good ones is called PBFT. Mm-hmm. It was invented in 1999, and it's used in a lot of services. If you go to Google's, you know, if you go to Gmail, in the background. Uh, there is a protocol that's essentially a simplified version of PBFT that's directing you to a server. Mm. That I think the P there was like partial Byzantine fault tolerance. Pra- practical, practical. Practical, sorry. Practical, practical. Byzantine yes. fault tolerance. Because everything that came before PBFT was, uh, was, 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 was trying to be Byzantine fault tolerant, but it was so inefficient. Okay. And PBFT is like the one that's acceptably not terrible, but it's still pretty darn bad. Is this kind so, of uh, the optimistic version where it's like you're, you kind of do you know that kind of expression of just like you mm-hmm. you're doing you need to reach a threshold for you to feel confident that it's working but it's not it's not full confidence no the pbft doesn't have that okay. i know what you're talking about and itai abraham probably talked about that other work um but uh, but pbft does not have that okay, component okay. pbft is a fully deterministic probability one kind of a system um, so I don't want to get into too many technicals, but the history history arc goes as follows. So we have classical protocols, then we have Satoshi come in, and uh, Satoshi gives us this vision that, hey, you can build really high-value systems, mm-hmm. and you can, in fact, approach this problem probabilistically, right? Bitcoin doesn't give you an entire entire guarantee. There is a chance that somebody will, will, uh, will mine a lot of blocks and revert history. It's just incredibly unlikely. It's exponentially unlikely the deeper the block is buried. So, so we have classical, then Satoshi. And then you have people going back and revisiting classical things. Okay. And they're like, hey, we want the benefits of what Satoshi did, but we also don't want mining and we want a much faster, much more scalable protocol. And now we're stuck and we don't know what to do. Mm. So why don't we go back into history and take one of these old, ugly protocols and put some lipstick on it and see what we get. Okay. And, uh, and there was a lot of lipstick on the pigs back then, you know, or whatever, or around now. Um, so people are trying to resurrect these protocols. They put some blockchain makeup on them, you know. Um, so uh, Tendermint ends up building on PBFT. It adds a small twist that makes it a little bit more efficient in one particular scenario. Mm. But at the core of it lies PBFT, and it's it's a PBFT is a sound protocol, and so it's great to be building on a sound protocol. There are also many protocols that are not even sound; they just crash. They're, they're wrong, okay. <laughs> and uh, people are putting their life savings. and uh, And if you're somebody who's technically sound, you're like, hey, I don't know what the heck is going on here. It's not going to end well, and it typically does not end well. And avalanche is the big difference there. So avalanche is, is you know it suddenly changes there. So we have A B. A prime, which okay. improves on A, and then suddenly we have 
C coming in and C, C is the avalanche. It's the biggest, third biggest jump. Tell me a little bit about that change then. What is it doing mm-hmm. differently? What, like how would you, where, I don't know where to start exactly, but maybe like given those, that, that story, the proof of work, we know it's proof of stake, but yeah, what's the big shift? So in the consensus protocol behind Avalanche, there is one big difference, which is it scales. It scales in a way that nobody else can scale, and it performs in a way that nobody else can perform. Finality in Avalanche is less than a second, even when the network is enormously big. We have a network currently of about 1,100 nodes scattered across the globe on every continent, uh, and uh, and yet the system is able to make decisions in less than a second. And uh, I keep advertising less than a second. It's actually 750 milliseconds. Mm. So in like two slow blinks of the eye, a transaction in Avalanche is completely immutable. It's done. It's finalized. So for comparison, that takes an hour on Bitcoin. And and again, for comparison with my bank, it takes like five days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we went from we went from traditional finance to to Satoshi's vision with an hour um, to uh, to less than a second, and in a in a fully decentralized setting. So it's uh, that's one of the biggest changes. But that's that's the outcome. I'm I'm more curious, like under the hood, you sort of mentioned it as a big shift away from the classical consensus. Yeah. So yeah, what's that change? What does that look like? Oh, in, in terms of its operation, the thing that, that, uh, that distinguishes Avalanche is the, the way it messages, the way it achieves consensus is uh, by repeated subsampled voting. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to essentially pass a law by collecting signatures on it, potentially from a huge number of participants. Okay, got it. So it's the subsample voting. That's what you're... Right. Okay. That, that's the subsampled voting. I think, so instead of instead of collecting signatures on every, on every block, what Avalanche does is uh, every node checks with a small number of nodes, mm-hmm. repeatedly does the same thing. And so we get the power of parallel processing across the, across the network to quickly uh, decide or to quickly come to a decision on whether a block is valid and should be admitted to the blockchain. How, how is the sampling chosen? Is it sort of a random choice of other nodes to sample? Like, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, yeah. like how are even the hierarchies of these subsampling working? Uh, so the math is is so robust, and this operation is so robust that um, that all you have to do is just have an approximate understanding of who's in the system. Mm-hmm. So you and I don't have to have an exact match of who exactly is in the parliament. So this is a very robust protocol. Um, classical protocols, if there is any kind of discrepancy between you and me, the two senators in the system, then they will actually break down. Mm. But Avalanche can tolerate a lot of uh, fuzziness and, and inaccuracy, actually. So as long as you and I have a rough idea of who's in the system, and we randomly pick some people from that list, okay. and we repeat that process, in a very small number of steps, ah. we are guaranteed to be in consensus. And then you, is it is it sort of like a probabilistic consensus then like you're you're assuming because you're randomly choosing random groups enough times but like how in this case though like when i think of like longest chain phenomenon or like if they're all validating if these validators or nodes are actually writing anything do you not end up with conflicts or cla- like clashes of what chain some of these groups think they're on so um Good question. And um, and so one of the things that Avalanche does is indeed, it's a probabilistic protocol. 
So what does that mean? There's a difference in theoretical computer science between protocols that give you a guarantee of probability 1.0 mm-hmm. versus protocols that give you a probabilistic guarantee. So one minus epsilon. And so this was one of the things that Satoshi identified. And he said, look, everybody's been approaching this consensus problem as a, as a, as a problem that needs to be solved with probability one. And instead, if I make it probabilistic, I can use a different technique. I'm going to use this mining idea. And, uh, and you know, so one minus epsilon is identical to one if epsilon is slow, so small enough. Yeah. And so that was his insight. And, um, and as you know, you know, it's possible. It's entirely possible for a miner to come up. You know, I could run a miner right now. And, and I could, you know, I could get so lucky that I find, you know, seven blocks in a row. It's possible. Mm-hmm. There's a probability of this happening. <laughs> Happening, the probability of that happening is far lower than the probability of me winning the lotto 10 times in a row, right? Yeah, yeah. It's an incredibly unlikely event, but it's possible. And uh, and Satoshi said, look, you know, forget these silly academics. They are always trying to achieve some theoretical perfection. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you're computing all this on a machine that's also probabilistic, and you are taking probabilistic risks all the time. Mm. So one of the things I, I like to remind people is that, you know, even as I speak to you right now, it's possible for all the air molecules to collide with each other and all the nitrogen to end up on my side of the room and all the oxygen to end up on the other side of the room. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that side would then ignite and then I would suffocate on the side. This is possible. Okay. It is absolutely possible. It, it can It's a happen. horrible, horrible <laughs> scenario, though. <laughs> but it doesn't, it's not it's a like, scenario we worry about yeah, because fair. the probability of it happening is so small. So Avalanche is a similar, similarly probabilistic system. And, um, uh, you know, you can adjust the probabilities any which way you like by changing the, the number of people you sample and the rounds in which you do the sampling. So find an epsilon that you are comfortable with and the system can implement that for you. Uh, And so as a result, it provides guarantees very similar to Bitcoin, probabilistic, but incredibly strong. Can you share a little bit about how a chain is built with this system? Because I mean, in some of the documentation, there's also talk of a DAG. So like, I'm Mm. I'm wondering if you are building it, you know, you're sampling and then there's like a, a moment, a beat where like everybody submits and then you make the chain or like how, like how are the blocks in the chain actually being created? That's a great, great question. And uh, it shows that you've read the Avalanche Avalanche paper. Uh, but let me actually answer from the perspective of somebody who's now built the system. And uh, and it differs a little bit from what's in the, the Avalanche paper, because the Avalanche paper provides you with a, a smaller view. And the thing that got built is even greater, even cooler. So implementation um, often, you know, forces innovation, I, I hear. It, <laughs> it, it really did in this case. It really did. And, and we started out wanting to do just this DAG-based thing, but then we ended up doing something far cooler. So let me tell you what it is. So at the highest level, Avalanche is not a single chain system. Okay. So it's actually maintaining multiple blockchains in parallel that are connected to each other. So um, we have multiple things we could be doing. And um, and one of the sort of one of the big innovations in Avalanche, other than the consensus protocol, mm-hmm. is this notion that the system can maintain multiple chains at the same time. And uh, so, for example, we're maintaining a linear blockchain uh, that is a copy of the Ethereum virtual machine. Mm-hmm. And we also have another chain on the, on the side in parallel that is a directed acyclic gla- graph 
that is maintaining the the uh, the Avox transactions, and uh, and in fact, if you wanted to create a new virtual machine based on a DAG, based on a chain, we could accommodate that and spin it up. And in fact, this is one of the big use cases for Avalanche. There are many enterprises that would like to have their own chains, mm. and to them, we just go and say, hey, look, you can start your own chain, subject to your own rules with your own validators, and uh, and subject to whatever you want them to be, you know, the fee regimes and so forth, or with compliance requirements that you might have mm-hmm. that are within the same avalanche family but independent from the rest of the system. So that's sort of the big picture and it changed a bunch from from what we focused on in the early days. Um, but let me also get back to the specifics of um, of how this works. So for any given transaction, uh, one of the core ideas in avalanche is that there is there is this really large network that generates blocks. Mm-hmm. Those blocks could be, could belong to a linear chain, or they could belong to a directed acyclic graph. Either way, whichever one makes sense for the use case. With, uh, with that DAGs, option, is one the AVEX and one would be a subnet, or like one of um, the or the EVM one? Like, yeah, where does that ch- like where would the second choice or the choice uh-huh. to follow a single line lead you? Where do you end up? Great question. So um, these are all subnet decisions. Okay. Uh, so you could pick a DAG subnet or you could uh, pick a linear chain subnet. Oh, I see. Okay. EVM, okay. EVM requires a linear chain because smart contracts require linearity. Uh, but transactions, you know, can happen in parallel and they're happy with a DAG. So uh, the X chain in Avalanche is a, is a DAG and the C chain is a regular linear blockchain. Got it. And, uh, this, this decision is based on, you know, do you need linearity? You're going to give up some performance. Mm-hmm. Or are you happy with not having linearity and uh, having things happen in parallel uh, and building a, a graph instead? You'll have slightly higher performance, but uh, but two things can happen concurrently. And if that's going to mess you up, you know, you're a bank and you require strict ordering, yeah. then you should use a chain. Uh, if you don't care for that, then I can get you a, even an even faster solution. In the system, the sort of X chain and the C chain, how does how, like do they communicate with each other? Is there movement between those two things? Yes, they can. And uh, you can take funds from the X chain to the C chain or the C chain to the X chain. All of that communication is uh, coordinated by this uh, P chain, the platform chain, the final, the oh. third and final chain okay. that uh, that tells you exactly how many chains are in the system and who the members of the chains are. Interesting. And so the ones we just described, X chain, C chain, the P chain is sort of over our chain, but you would there be like if one wanted to launch their own blockchain that was also public, would it take mm-hmm. on a new form or would it be considered also a C chain? No, no, no. There could you could create an NFT chain dedicated okay. to NFTs. You could create a you know a Siemens chain for Siemens applications. You could create a Bank of America chain for Bank of America. Mm. Uh, you could create a US U.S. securities chain and put U.S. securities subject to U.S. securities laws on that chain. Mm. Um, you could create a data chain that holds you know, EU data subject to GDPR rules. So these chains, uh, they can run their own virtual machines. They have their own validators and their own rule sets subject to whatever technical and, and legal requirements you might have. Got it. And the subsampling, the, the sort of consensus, where is that happening? Is it happening in all of them? Is that more in the P chain? No, it's happening in all of them at the okay. same time in parallel. But is is it the same nodes? Like, would a client be running all three of these things? Or is it one thing that generates all three of these things? It need not be the same nodes. So, uh, okay. so you could create, uh, you know, an Anna chain 
subject to, you could create a closed, you remember private permission blockchains? Back in 2017. Like, yeah, back in 2017, <laughs> everybody was doing them because they wanted to have Supply chain control. Management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they wanted to have control over their assets. And that's a normal thing to want. Yeah. And, um, and so if you wanted to build one of those, you could say, hey, this is Anna chain. And to, to, to be a validator, you need a token that only Anna gives out. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so that gives you a solution that completely subsumes everything in the private blockchain space. So whoever was doing all that work that went nowhere and they realized, hey, these things go nowhere. They're one-off solutions. They're, They're isolated islands. Yeah. They can't connect. But now if you were to do it as a subnetwork on underneath Avalanche, you can connect them. You can start out as a private permission network. Hmm. You can open it up. You could connect it to other private permission networks. You could connect it to the public network. It's kind of like, it's exactly like how we wired the internet up. Remember, it started out with universities connecting their dorms mm -hmm. and then universities connecting to each other and it kind of went up from there. It's a similar idea. You can create your own subnet subject to your own rules, connect them where necessary, where it makes sense, and then you build something richer and bigger as, you, as these things connect to, to each other. Do you see the P-chain as sort of the connective glue in this? Yes, like, absolutely. Is, is it a bridge? Is Would it be no. like, do you, when you send from one of these to another, are you using it? Um, no, you are okay. not. You're, You're not, not using, using it. the P-chain. Yeah. But, uh, but it is the connective glue. Um, you are going through the information on the P-chain to go from X to C and C to X, for example. But not so. send, not transferring, not like token transfer. Right. Okay. The P-chain, yeah, exactly. If you did go through the P-chain, then the P-chain would have to understand the asset description of everything that happens underneath. Ah, and, and it doesn't. chose not to have that. It's it's instead peer-to-peer. -peer. So, so if there's an Anna chain and there's a Henrik chain, then those two can talk to each other without the P chain knowing anything about what's happening on the Anna chain or the Henrik chain. Cool. There are lots of these interoperability plays in the blockchain space where uh, they've made decisions that just don't make sense, where you have to a priori know a lot or, or expose a lot. Mm. Uh, we always made decisions that favor privacy uh, within each blockchain. The oh, only thing that, that the P-chain knows is the, is the membership, is the validators in the chains. Got it. Also, cool shout out to uh, our editor, Henrik. Henrik, you got a chain. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about bridges as a topic, as a theme. Like, oh, sure. I mean... You have an EVM compatible chain, the C chain. So, and I know that the Ava. What what is the name of the bridge? What is the main bridge between like Ethereum and Avalanche? We call it. It's got a very prosaic name. We call it the Avalanche Bridge. A -B. <laughs> okay, the Avalanche Bridge. Sometimes there's <laughs> yeah. other names like Rainbow Bridge. Right. Or, um, right. Okay, so the Avalanche Bridge. You're, that's I mean, an obvious. I think a lot of people are bridging to Ethereum. Do you like, are you working on a bridging, like a, almost an AVA native bridging technology? Or would you see kind of these other chains independently bridging to other networks and not um, maybe not Ethereum, like the other kind of upcoming ones? Great question. So I've been saying this for some time now, and uh, let me uh, let me mention it for your audience as well. I see this next year turning into a big war of bridges. Wow. So um, I think people are people were early on very confused, uh, especially in the Ethereum community, about layer ones versus layer twos, and so on and so forth. 
Um, the way I see this world is very, very simple. And let me just mention it. And I think once people hear it, they will understand that this is the proper way to view, view, view these wars. Layer ones and layer twos and so forth, it, it just doesn't matter. Like mm -hmm. The technology underneath them, the terminology used doesn't matter. These are all different kinds of chains. Yeah. You have chains and then you have technologies for connecting them that we call bridges. Totally. So um, we started out with a lot of value created on a few chains. And um, now it's going to be a, a, a big fight to get that value onto chains where it can be processed much more efficiently, mm -hmm. um, you know, much more beautifully, much more elegantly, whatever it is that people want from these chains, um, the, the value will try to flow there. Uh, moving that value securely is not easy. And that's where the bridges come in. I see. And, uh, so layer ones and layer twos, I don't know what the distinction is between them. I think every layer, two, I think layer, well, I can go on to this. I don't have well, a yeah, it depends a little on the L2s, like some L2. So I just on the last episode was talking to uh, one sub from Z Kapru and he he was like, every L2 is a DAP. And I was like, whoa, mind blown yeah. because yeah. it's smart contracts. But like right. there is potentially sometimes a more evolved chain under the hood. And so, yeah, which is a blockchain, which is an L2, which is an L1. Mm. But I like kind of your framing that basically if you're running, if you have transactions that are secure and then you're bridging to an, another chain, then you are a, you're effectively just using a bridge. Exactly. Exactly. The, 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 the technological distinctions are just so, so immaterial. They all blur into each other. And uh, all you've got are chains and bridges. Uh, we are lucky in the sense that we pioneered the cheapest, most secure bridge built to date. Mm -hmm. And uh, this Avalanche bridge uses a different technology that prior to us, nobody was using. It's a secure execution technology from Intel. Mm. And uh, it allowed us to build a trustless bridge. And that bridge is uh, essentially a, a, chain, a, a bridge that uh, cannot misbehave even if the person operating the bridge decided to do to to do malfeasance, got it. Is it uh, using Intel SGX? Is it in an enclave? Okay, it's in an enclave exactly. So it's constrained in what it can do, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, it facilitates the transfer of, of value um, using only a single transaction on each side. So that's why it's so cheap and so fast to use. It's the simplest bridge technology I've seen. That bridge that you're describing, that the avalanche bridge, like I always understand that as being Ethereum to this to the C chain, like to the Correct. EVM That's compatible. But yes. could you use that bridge for other types of bridging? Absolutely. There's okay. no reason why it should just be confined to Ethereum and we are actively working on bridging to other other chains. Cool. Can you say which ones? I'm curious. No? <laughs> no, no I, oh. that, I, I don't want to leak alpha. And I, I want to know me. where your bets are going, though. <laughs> exactly. Where, where, where's the, where are the bets going? So who, how would we benefit the most? How would our community benefit the most? That's the big question. Um, no, I can't say where we are headed, but uh, it's going to be such a fun year. And uh, we are so far ahead, given the fact that we built this awesome bridge. Uh, using SGX technology, which I think is the right way to do this and the only way that that's universal. So I'm really excited about what's to come. Actually, one more question on this. I don't know if you're going to let me know this, but like, are are the bridges that you're looking at also EVM compatible? Or would you even be considering bridging to like non-EVM compatible through this bridge? I don't want to leak alpha, but no. I will say this. If you are unable to go everywhere where value is, then you do, I don't think you should be in this game. Okay, so, so where there's value. Let me also mention this. And here, I'll leak some alpha for you. Okay, um, thank you. <laughs> if, if, the, if your universe for bridging is confined only 
to other crypto, then mm. you're in this zero, zero sum mindset and you are not really thinking big enough. I think from the get-go um, in Avalanche, we've been saying the same thing, which is we are here to digitize all of the world's assets. And most of the world's assets are not in crypto form. Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't come to this world to try to take value away from Ethereum. That's the last thing I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, we came to this world to try to go after the 700 trillion that's not in blockchain form. And so we want to get those on board uh, ourselves. So that's what I'm really excited about. Is there any sort of expansion plan for the C chain? Like, is there, right now it's EVM compatible. Will it be evolving differently from mm -hmm. the kind of Ethereum version of it? Absolutely. And um, so what's there to say on this front? There's so much to say on this By the front. way, just um, a side note, that question comes from Tarun, who was supposed to be, who we wanted to have on the show, but we couldn't because of scheduling. So uh, just shout out to Tarun. Thank you for that one. <laughs> yeah, no, Tarun. Tarun's a bright guy. He's asking all the right questions to leak all the right alphas. So absolutely. Um, so look, uh, Ethereum is, is constrained in so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they came up with an EVM. Uh, if you look critically at, at the EVM, if you're a distributed systems person and you were to make build a new smart contract platform, you would probably not make 90% of the decisions that they made. You know, they were, they were first. So they made a bunch of decisions in the dark. And knowing what we know now, I can build a, an EVM that's much better, much faster. So there is so much to do mm -hmm. um, that, that, uh, that one could do. Also, they are constrained both politically. I, I didn't appreciate initially just how politically constrained they are. Yeah. They are committed to ETH2. They are committed to uh, the old bytecode. There, there are a bunch of things, and they're committed to certain data structures. There are a bunch of things that, that they cannot undo. Uh, it would be, they would lose too much face. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I didn't appreciate this. I thought they were, they were nimble. I thought they could undo mistakes they have done. But time has shown us, I think, by now that, that they're not able to do that. So uh, for someone in my position, the, the right move is crystal clear, which is innovate technically mm. and uh, bring the science hammer and hit it, hit every problem with it. So of course, we're going to be modifying the EVM. Of course, we're going to be introducing new opcodes. I'm um, on the ZK show. There's so much zero knowledge uh, stuff that we can add there that, that is far more efficient than what's already in there. Um, I can add more, you know, I can add all sorts of new data structures that simplify the things that the nodes do. And there is like the sky's the limit and uh, anything and everything is, is on the table for us. We have a very strong team of technologists. I'm thrilled about the, the innovation that we have planned. I want to, so this this story is sort of of the slowness, we kind of mentioned it earlier about like Bitcoin not moving as quickly. And I think Ethereum governance, I've, I've covered it a number of times on the show over the years. And it's like, it's beautiful because it's very collaborative and there's a lot of people whose, you know, interest is considered and there's a lot of conversation and people who care, but it ends up, you know, it's this sort of classic of like, direct democracy for all choices with different levels of understanding makes for a like a complicated, potentially like slowed down process. And not that it's direct democracy, actually. In this case, it's like sort of sentiment of the crowd trying to figure out what, what to do next. How is Avalanche governed? And by the way, sorry, so, I keep switching between like Avalanche and Ava, and maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should be more specific. Like how is the yeah. network... Oh, the, the, the network is called Avalanche, and Ava Labs is the company that provides the technology for the code. So, um, and the client is the Avalanche client. 
Avalanche client. Exactly. And Avalabs decide, like, I, that's basically what I'm curious about. It's like the decisions mm-hmm. about client upgrades at this stage. What, where does it look like? Uh, great question. We are at a different different uh, place in our evolution uh, compared to systems that are that have been out for six plus years, mm-hmm. like Ethereum and others. So um, we are also at Ava Labs. We are committed to ensuring that we only do those things that our community would overwhelmingly and with great enthusiasm accept. Mm-hmm. So um, our vision for governance is that there are key parameters in the system that uh, that need to change dynamically. Uh, for example, the minting rate is sub- is something that should be subject to change as the macro conditions change. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't have anybody in charge of changing that. And Ava Labs would never even dare to to modify something key like that. So um, the uh, the plan, the vision for uh, for the changes in key parameters is that uh, they are subject to modification by coin voting. Oh, wow. So, so like it's the on-chain governance kind of... On-chain governance. Mm-hmm. U- using the Avalanche, actually it uses the Avalanche protocol for uh, repeated subsampled voting to, to see what people will go along with. So you, anybody could propose a change and then that repeated process will come, will see if there is consensus around that, that proposal. I have a question on that, actually. So like the valid, is it the validators primarily who are doing the voting in this system or is it yes. you sort of mentioned token holders? So it's like, say you delegate to a validator and then the mm-hmm. validator, the validator would do the voting. Can you also as an individual do voting? Um, so are. that this this component has, this is a great, that's a good question. This component there are actually multiple implementations of this component. So um, the very initial uh, vision that we had for this is that to have a voice you have to have a validator. So okay. it's the validators that that uh, participate in this repeated process. But you have a lot of validators. We have a lot of validators. So you, it's um, easy to be a validator, I guess. It's easier it, than it, some other systems. That the system can absorb any number okay. and they meaningfully participate in every decision. It's not like, oh, this decision got made by a subset. No, no. Mm-hmm. In every decision, you and I and everybody we know was, was a participant. Um, we have a second implementation of this, which has a different flavor to it, where you could delegate your tokens to a to a validator for the purposes of making decisions in the network. But the governance is implemented via these these um, uh, via a separate key. So it's a more you know it allows people to have validators that participate in the protocol while retaining voting rights, if that makes sense. Yes. So. So we have two different implementations for this. Uh, neither are active at the moment. Our system is brand new. We are mm-hmm. barely 14 months old. And uh, we're in a, in a phase where all of our economic parameters are frozen at the moment. They haven't been subject to governance. And um, uh, we are making changes to the underlying technicals, essentially the sort of the client implementations that make the system more efficient and more smooth. We are not at the stage yet where we can open it up for governance. Uh, and uh, that's coming up soon. That's going to be a this year event. Wow. I'm really excited about it. And, uh, and so, so far it's been heads down, build the best technical foundation for absorbing all of the world's assets. That's where we are. And we've been delivering like no other team in this crypto universe. I mean, this is such a challenge, this like this move towards decentralization and decentralizing the decision making. And I think what we've 
kind of covered a few times also on the on the show is this idea that like in DeFi protocols, when it's in like a, a, a numeric change that's very, very clear and determined, deterministic, like you can see what this would like, you can go to five or you can go to eight, something like mm-hmm. that, like something very, mm-hmm. very specific, then governance seems to be quite effective. Where it becomes mm-hmm. more muddled is when it's like, should we fund this initiative? How much budget? He- so I, I do wonder, like, if you have, and I know this is like maybe not the problem that you're focused on, but I'm curious what the thinking is around that further step of decentralization. Uh, right. So that uh, that pertains to different entities in the system. So the Avalanche Foundation, for example, has substantial funds, mm-hmm. and uh, it gives some of these funds as incentives to certain deserving projects. So you know, what should the Avalanche Foundation be doing? Um, in uh, in making those decisions. So uh, up until now, we've been in startup mode. Up until now, we've been in a essentially uh, benevolent dictator mode, if you would, mm-hmm. um, making decisions that obviously would bring the best the, the best of outcomes to the community as a whole. I think we have weathered many storms. And we have made some amazing decisions that brought us from relative obscurity to, uh, at the moment, I think we're a top 11 coin, but uh, but I think in, in every technological respect, uh, we are very, very, very high up there. You know, we're mm-hmm. like number two or three in terms of TVL and uh, in terms of mindshare and, and for developers, we're right up there as clearly the, the best platform to be building on for smart contract developers. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I think we managed that process well, and, and we did okay so far. Uh, going forward, the principle that's guiding this is that everything should be community serving. And um, the foundation itself should be something that is open and serving and accountable to the community. And um, you can rest assured that we, we will be doing everything we can, as we have been until now, uh, to make sure that the decisions are maximally serving the community. Um, I think our track record speaks for itself in this regard. So you can expect more of that, yeah. um, and uh, with more transparency as time goes on, as you know, as, as we get as we sort out our processes for exposing totally. more. I mean, to me, it's like this is a question that all new L ones kind of face. I mean, you can look at how Ethereum managed their funding and their foundation mm-hmm. uh, as some sort of guide, but I um, I'm personally very curious to see what the next few years bring for the newer networks. Um, mm-hmm. With the lessons learned from previous ones, seeing if there's ways to, yeah, kind of decentralize or automate, like, uh, what do I want to say? Automate, sorry. Or yeah. like automate some of these governance decisions that go past sort of the more like DeFi or validator emission, like reward rate metrics. But I don't know yeah, that anyone I, yeah. has the silver bullet yet. Like, I think it's going to well, be interesting. Well, no, no one has a silver bullet. You are so right. And I want yeah. to unapologetically and unabashedly put a stake in the ground about what we plan to do. Okay. So I have seen time and time again, and I've even been part of, um, in, in some cases, um, some mistakes that people repeat in this space. Mm. People get caught up in their own rhetoric. People get caught up in in nice sounding dreams that are not backed by science. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, in appealing sounding verbiage, they get tangled up in it and they find themselves um, sacrificing the ability to execute in order to to pursue some abstract dream. So uh, in particular, decentralization, um, you know, often means different things to people mm-hmm. and um, projects that, uh, you know, you hear about. It's like, oh, you know, we ended up decentralizing this, that and the other. I don't know what that means. Uh, in many cases, they don't know what that means. 
they end up losing the ability to execute. Projects that are, uh, that are giving up the ability to move fast, uh, and also the projects that are giving up the ability to fund development end up, end up making huge mistakes. I mean, it sounds great. Oh, this is community-owned. Uh, sounds wonderful at first, but then you look at these community-owned projects and they're not going anywhere. I mean, so or, or Bitcoin, it's like, so this and that. Great. Well, who are the Bitcoin devs and how are they getting funded? And it turns mm -hmm. out it's very hard to get funding for them. So, um, so we have an advantage and uh, in that we have a well-funded team that's driving the development process and the foundation itself has substantial funds. And as long as we're in startup mode, we're going to be using those funds effectively, quickly, mm -hmm. and we're going to be deploying them for development wherever the ecosystem might need them uh, without incurring the overhead of having to conduct everything, uh, every decision like in public, mm -hmm. committees and so forth. So we're, I'm not going to be making that mistake. I've seen it yeah. kill projects. Totally. I mean, you can look at you can look at the predecessors that came before us. They're not doing well. They're not executing well. So another Tarun question was actually a question of how DeFi acceleration worked, like kind of on this lane, like in terms of funding and, and getting projects over, how has that been done? And because and at this stage, as I understand it, there's a lot of DeFi projects on Ava, And in a short period, they started deploying there. So tell me how you did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I am really proud of what's happened. We have more than, you know, there are many chains that are saying things like, oh, we have, you know, 250 projects coming on board. And what you really have is a ghost chain with five or 50 projects and 200 in the planning stages, etc. They they gave millions of dollars to 200. Many mm -hmm. of those projects, they, they finish up and they, they decide, hey, I'm not going to deploy on the people who funded me. I'm going to go deploy on Avalanche because it's so much better. So we have more than 500 deployed projects with countless in the in the background ready to come out. So we ended up going from essentially, not essentially, literally zero, 14 mm -hmm. months ago, we had no main net, uh, to being the second or third uh, coin with the largest TVL. So how did we manage to do it? We attracted so much value and uh, so many devs. There's more than a million point three develop unique addresses on our C-chain in, in the last three months alone. So it's it's just, the numbers are insane. They speak for themselves. We have so many users. I'm really proud of it. And um, the question is is right on. Uh, part of the success had to do with incentives. So um, uh, you you know we, we did a combination of uh, giving grants to new projects to deploy natively on Avalanche, mm -hmm. uh, as well as incentivizing existing projects, successful projects that had grown up in Ethereum, but had li hit limits. So, you know, Aave, for example, fantastic project, but there's only so far it can go if it's limited to Ethereum because mm -hmm. the world's supply of people who can pay $50 per transaction is pretty small, actually, or more. It's, yeah. it's just pretty small, it turns out. So they want to expand. They want to reach a different audience. They don't want to be relegated to a chain that's mostly whales and bots. They want more people. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so you need to, you know, the, the DeFi incentive programs played a huge role in getting them on board us. And the funny thing is, of course, now a lot of people have been copying us. Uh, this has been true since day one, uh, since our public sale. You know, people have been emulating. You know, we had a glitch in our public sale. People have emulated even the glitch we had during our public <laughs> sale. There are lots of copycats out there. But, um, you know, it's not, there's a huge moat here. And, uh, and the people who've been trying to emulate us are figuring out this exact same 
thing. You can you can give people money, you can do all sorts of things to try to bring them on board. But if the product you're offering them is not pleasant to use, if it's not delightful, if if the users touch it and they're like, eh, what the heck was that? Mm. Or that was rough, or it was then then they turn away and they turn away permanently and for good. Mm. So um one of the nice things about Avalanche is we got our ducks in a row before we we invoked the incentive programs. And so people who come to Avalanche, they find that it's very hard to go back. So once you get used to that super fast interaction, you know, I find myself unable to touch my funds on Ethereum. I just, I can't, I can't wait 15 seconds. It's not even final after 15 seconds, but I can't mm. wait 15 seconds once I'm used to 750 milliseconds. For me, it's always the gas estimates that is, that's killing oh. me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stock transaction 56. <laughs> <That hurt. laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's really killer. I have a question that sort of goes back to the technical level, which was about uh, MEV. Mm-hmm. Uh, in November, there was something with AVA and MEV, some sort of bot <laughs> thing. MEV has come up a few times on the show. It's been like, you know, a topic that, you know, lots of teams are working on. And my, I guess my first question is like, which chain does MEV even live on for, for your system? And what was that? What, what happened in November? Maybe actually let's start with what happened in November and then I can explore. I think there was uh, there was a lot of discussion between the researchers who work on MEV mm-hmm. and um, and various other L1 teams about ME about what MEV is and uh, how much of it there is. So I think the thing to remember here is that these are all new concepts that uh, for many years we built systems paying attention only to safety and liveness as the two properties that we care about and um MEV extraction, extractability, you know, who benefits from the operation of the system? Um, How do they get to benefit? Are there special nodes in the system that are in a privileged position to collect money as intermediaries? Mm. These were all questions that sort of got swept under the rug or were ignored. And uh, in a wonderful paper uh, a few years ago, researchers from Cornell University... Phil, part of it. ...involving Phil Diane started looking into this. And, uh, and they gave it a name called MEV, Minor Extractable Value. So since then, um, I think the people have been paying much more attention to essentially, it's, uh, just think of it as the collection of activities you can do to extract money yeah. from the system. It's a um, bit of a Pandora's box, right? It's like by shining a light on it, all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, you can do that? Cool. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it, but it's, it's like, yeah, meet, meet the new bosses. And they're kind of like the old bosses. They're kind of like the people, like the citadels of the world who come in between your order flow and, and start sniping on transactions. The, the MEV value that's extracted typically comes from retail users. Mm. So, but I should also mention this. We're in the early stages of developing the, the science around MEV. Mm-hmm. And so in November, there was a bunch of discussion and it emerged, for example, that my definition of MEV was different from all the other people's definition of MEV. And uh, I, my is, is internally consistent and coherent, but it's not the same as other people's. And mm. theirs is okay too, but and it's also internally consistent, but it's not the same. Not the so same. essentially, we were trying to figure out our definitions and what the definitions ought to be. Um, there, it's it's a little hard to. Um, you know, there needs to be somebody who does a great scholarship, you know, a great work of scholarship here and uh, brings some nomenclature. At the moment, we even lack the ability to to uh, to categorize different forms of MEV. So mm-hmm. there's always going to be arbitrage opportunities. Arbitrage opportunities are not necessarily bad. 
So you should be able to go to a market and make money. That's good. Well, are you making that money by sniping on somebody else? And are you taking it from somebody who would be in some fashion more rightfully, uh, you know, more rightfully uh, uh, licensed to that cash? Well, then that's bad. So, so we, need, we need the terminology uh, that we currently don't have because the scholarship has not been done yet. Mm. So, um, so that, that terminology needs to come in and, uh, and then the techniques will follow. I have found that... Um, that people who don't bring this this terminology um, are usually also unable to think clearly about solution strategies as well. So as a space that hasn't have we haven't been able to do that yet. So I think we're going to sit and uh, and uh, and figure out how to sort of categorize this and come up with techniques for for uh, minimizing MEV extraction uh, of the wrong kind from the system. The event that I'm referring to it's something i mean this was on twitter i don't know real backstory on this but it was this idea that like non-validating nodes could have an edge and so there was these mev or like some sort of maybe it's not mev maybe some sort of validators who were trying to kind of game it somehow right so we we made a couple of changes to reduce mev extraction and avalanche okay um let me also put my foot down here and talk about our strategy and how it's different from uh from other people's so so protocols like ethereum they do what they do right they have Mm -hmm. their miners and the miners could actually extract a huge amount of mev Mm -hmm. they can jump in front of every order they can sandwich every order they can do whatever the heck they want because they are ultimately the ones that order transactions so um uh, in Avalanche, we have validators and we have a very different protocol. And um, uh, so in that protocol, it is possible to do a bunch of things again, uh, as it is possible. It, the, the extractable value will never be zero. So mm-hmm. there are things that could have happened in Avalanche. And uh, we looked around at what people were doing and we made some changes to reduce the ability of, uh, of people who don't run a validator to jump in and uh, and do front running attacks. Got it. So this is uh, entirely in the service of our users, and uh, it reduced the ability of of uh, people to snipe at transactions inside the system. And um, so this gets people upset because oh hey I was making money <laughs> why are you upset <laughs> you took my money source away and uh, and uh, again unabashedly and unapologetically I I and other developers for Avalanche will enact every single. Uh, change mm-hmm. that gets rid of the bad bad sources of any of, of, of validator extractable value. Do you do you feel like at least from what I understood from this, it was this idea that like if you launched lots of these non-validating nodes, that it would somehow pull the network, put the network in some sort of like odd space. And I realize I'm citing a tweet, so like don't get me wrong, I, I have not no, dug a, into that's, it. But. That's that's not the main issue. That was the secondary. So there were multiple things that there were multiple optimizations we deployed. Okay. Uh, that was a secondary issue, uh, which was that if you uh, deployed a lot of non-validating nodes, mm-hmm. then um, you could slow down other validators oh. Oh. and get an edge that way. Oh, interesting. And, uh, there is no reason for the validating nodes to um, to spend so many resources on non-validators, and uh, and so we added some limits, which again uh, clipped people's wings and uh, limited what they could do. And these are all to protect the consensus protocol underneath. We will unabashedly employ everything we can to avoid DDoS attacks, MEV attacks, 
and to protect our users. And, uh, and this is one of our huge advantages compared to, uh, to other systems. It sounds like sort of riding a ship, like you're kind of like, you're going to move a little bit in this direction, see if there's some sort of change of behavior, you can kind of move in another. Like you said, it's sort of a, a field of study that's still not you know, fully fleshed out. And I, I do mm-hmm. wonder, like thinking about MEV for AVA, is it a very different science than thinking of, it sounds like it's very different from thinking about MEV for just a standalone chain. Like you said, there's um, sort of other behaviors that could have impact and it's different. Like it's not a one-to-one from the work that's been done on like Geth. And no, absolutely. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Avalanche is so different as a protocol that uh, the sources of uh, extractable value are different. The types of things that people can do against the protocol are different. Mm-hmm. And um, the science in this in this area, as I mentioned, is just so nascent. The terminology hasn't hasn't really flushed itself out yet, let alone the solution strategies. We don't have metrics for measuring MEV. How, how do you measure MEV? Yeah. It's just un, un, uh, unspecified. So uh, there are no good quantitative measurable metrics in our hands. Uh, there's so much work to be done by good academics in this space. Cool. Well, I've run out of questions. I want to say th- thanks so much for walking through all of this. No problem. We ended up going quite deep on a, on a number of topics. I was, I was delighted to do that. I'm always delighted to talk to a technically savvy audience and a technically savvy interviewer. Cool. So fantastic to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show and sharing with all of us the story of AVA. I hope we get to, you know, explore more, you know, as new insight comes, maybe projects that are built on top of it as well. I'd love to get to know the community a bit more. Um, yeah, just as, as an aside, this is actually the first deep dive I've ever done into AVA. So this is mm-hmm. this has also been really informative for me. Fantastic. Well, let's hope it's not the last. So, <laughs> there's so much happening on top of us. I hope uh, you'll interview other people from the community. There, there's, there's so much exciting stuff going on. Cool. All right. I want to say thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik, the podcast producer, Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.